0: you're listening to a podcast from the media motel coming up this week in
1: episode 457 how much does juliet know about juliet booze and drugs and rock and roll and wrapping up the world with chris that's all coming up after 10cc and rubber Bullet.
2: He said, blood will flow here,
3: Padre, Padre, you talk to yourself.
4: never really received the credit they deserve for their clever, witty yet hook-filled pop songs recorded at the delightfully named Strawberry Studios in Stockport, Cheshire, from 1973, number one in the UK, 10cc and rubber bullets.
1: I do like that. That's, uh, as, a, as a party, there's a problem at the local county jail, isn't there? A lot of stuff <laughs> happened at, at, at local county jails. That, that's where the jailbreak took place, as you will <laughs> recall, we had a somewhat <laughs> a, this, a sort of despairing conversation about... about uh, yeah, about
4: the Thin Lizzy th- track. Tonight, there's going to be a jailbreak somewhere in the town
1: well um, it's going to be
4: at the jail
1: <laughs> i mean that's why some people would join the police and some people would become pop stars i assume everyone gets good at their their own na- natural things but yeah i like that 10cc track it doesn't really sound like the, the the sound that they're famous for really which i suppose is i'm not in love really mm. but um but yeah it's uh, it's an enjoyable rinky dink style number is how i'll sum that up
4: Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 457. I'm Terence Dackham and stand clear of the doors and mind the gap. It's Juliette Harris.
1: I always enjoy your somewhat surrealist introductions. You've got a whole sliding scale of intros you do for me. I think that's very good. I, I quite like warning goods may have settled in transit, which feels very appropriate for those of us who spend their lives sat on sofas at the moment. Hello, by the way, everyone. Hi. But well, this week
4: we we start with a quiz, but it's a quiz with a difference, Jules. Oh. Yeah, no sound clips to play you this week. Instead, I have ten questions. Oh, for goodness' sake! In a quiz entitled "How much does Juliet Harris know about Juliet Harris?" Oh
1: uh, nothing probably. But ten questions
4: you. about you, Juliet. Oh, this
1: uh, is. This- heartwarming and charming yet terrifying carry on
4: seven out of ten to win the star prize a night in with yourself
1: well that's so hard to come by at the moment so i look forward to it cheers let's see how much you
4: know juliet about juliet oh
1: right okay question one
4: the 2015 uk election you were famously photographed with (laughs) labour leader ed Miliband. As he presented a stone tablet with six promises carved into it, you remember this?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I do remember that. Of
4: the six promises, can
1: you remember any three of them? Uh, An NHS with time to care. One. Um. Uh, it's it's something to do with a country where each generation does better than the last
4: i'll give you that a country where the next generation can do better than the last i'm giving you that one
1: and um there was something about immigration Um, yes controls on immigration
4: three is good enough for me the others were a strong economic foundation higher living standards for working families and homes to buy and action on rent so good start juliet thank you one i remember
1: a- the housing one was shut it was originally five pledges and the housing one was shoved on very hurriedly at the last minute i, I do remember that
4: question two mm. you're still with us juliet yes i'm concentrate now quiet in the studio <laughs> on friday the 16th of november 2018 You went to see Courtney Barnett live at the Brighton Dome. I did. With a couple of pounds leeway either way, how much did you pay for your ticket?
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I think I paid. (sighs) It was in the 20s, I think. Let's say 28 quid
4: i'm going to going to give you a half a point for that it was 23 i think oh, it was darn. far enough away not to be given that 23 pounds to see courtney barnett question three juliet how yes. much do you know about yourself question three on the 27th of november 2012 you bought something you already owned what was it I'll give you a clue if needed. You seem I to be do, gone, I do, definitely silent.
1: I do need a clue, yes.
4: Um, it was something you put on your wall. You already owned it,
1: oh, you was it, was it. Was it a second copy of Elastica by Elastica?
4: It was a second copy of a record, but it wasn't Elastica by Elastica. It was a 12-inch single. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Well, I'm gonna to have to rule that one out, Juliet. You don't uh, you don't score there. A twelve inch single, Legal Man by Bell and Sebastian. Oh, yes. to
1: it was, yes. To I celebrate own, a new I job. Owned, I did. I owned it on C D single. I did not own it on vinyl.
4: Well, we're disappointed with that one, Juliet, but we'll keep going.
1: <laughs> I feel like I'm being interviewed by a police sergeant, by the way. I don't know where the drugs are. Stop questioning me.
4: Juliet Lucy Harris.
1: Yes, parents.
4: On the 7th of October 2013, you appeared on the No Nay Never podcast for Burnley fans.
1: It's actually I I did. Yes, I did.
4: You certainly did. During the course of that podcast, which player did you refer to when you said you'd been sceptical about him, but he had surprised you?
1: I really don't know, Terence. This this yes. might well have happened in the 19th century. I have no memory of that at all. It was a player
4: who played for Queens Park Rangers, who many would have thought would have had a torrid what time. Was,
1: it was Joey Barton.
4: It was Joey Barton. I'm going to give you that one.
1: That's very kind, thank you.
4: Two and a half out of four.
1: That's not bad. It That's gets all worse. Right.
4: Uh oh. There's ten questions. We're not even halfway
1: yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I must try and get into this. It's just yes. so
4: embarrassing. Carry on. In January 2014, you contributed to a website called Music Versus the World by suggesting a song to a list on the theme of birds.
1: What was that song, Juliet? Was it Birds by Electrolane? No, it was not. Oh, I, I don't know, Terence. I've no We've idea. We'll get a bit touchy. <laughs> it's so long ago. Stop living in the past. It was the White
4: Stripes' Little Bird.
1: Oh man, okay. Uh, have you got some easy ones?
4: Yeah, this is an easy one. You'll get this next one.
1: Excellent. Thank In fact,
4: you. it gets actually it gets a bit easier on the <laughs> the, with the difficult ones. On the 21st of May
1: 2017,
4: hmm. you DJed at an event local to you called Rock the Vote. Was to have multiple choice here? Hmm. Was the venue for that gig? It's one of three. Was it the Dragon Bar, the Printworks? Or the Hastings and St Leonard's Sailing Club.
1: It was that was the Printworks, I think.
4: That's a big score for you, hey. Juliet. You're right back into contention. Boom. As of Thursday, fourth of June, twenty twenty, at eight thirty p.m. <laughs> yes. How many tweets have you posted since joining Twitter? And I'll give you a thousand or so each way.
1: I am going to say. Um, Oh, it's quite a few, isn't it? It's quite depressing. Um, I'm going to say 70,000. (laughs)
4: 99,896.
1: <laughs> I need to get off the internet, don't I? You, oh, you only
4: need 104 to break 100,000. to be like the milometer of a car going like, over But
1: everybody likes to tweet me that's listening to the podcast, and I'll tweet back, and then that will push me over the edge. Oh, man, that is. That I'm going to okay, yeah. give you a chance for a bonus point. I'm going
4: to give you a chance for a bonus point because you're only on three and a half so far. No. When did you join Twitter? I'll give you a few months either side.
1: I think it was April 2009. Spot on. Yeah, Spot on. boom. Um,
4: three questions to go. Now, the last three questions are all on a theme. Okay. We stay with Twitter in a section called, Who tweeted it, Is it <laughs> Julius Harris? Yes. Russell Brand or Kirsty <laughs> Allsop?
1: Oh, my people. Thank you.
4: From two th- 19th of November 2012, a very short tweet. I'm eating this soup too fast. Was it ill-informed philosopher Russell Brand, TV busybody Kirsty Allsop, or you, Juliet Harris? I'm eating this soup too fast.
1: I think it was me.
4: It was you, Juliet <laughs> Harris.
1: <laughs> that eating is a
4: soup too things. fast.
1: I would do, yes, absolutely
4: you're well on the way to recover you've got one two three four five and a half Ooh. you need one and a half out of the two oh, questions absolutely. left to- oh man
1: it's high stakes high stakes stuff this
4: first of november 2009 who tweeted this was it russell brand kirsty allsop or <laughs> Juliet harris at tesco woman in front appears to be buying the whole shop had i known this would take so long i would have brushed my hair
1: Oh, was it Russell Brand? It was you, Juliette Lucy Harris. <laughs> oh, I think I was spotted the theme. I thought it might be me, but um, yes, I, I have more snark. I thought that was going to be a tale about the time I queued up in Lidl's behind somebody that was A, only buying vodka and lemons and B, looked incredibly like PJ Holby but wasn't. But uh, no, that was another thrilling supermarket visit.
4: Funny you should mention lemons. Uh, Finally, final question. On the thirteenth of August, twenty ten, who tweeted this? If life gives you lemons, politely thank life. Then, when life's not looking, throw the lemons into a duck pond. Was it pseudo intellectual Russell Brand, pompous housefinder Kirsty Allsop, (laughs) or you, lovely Juliet Harris?
1: Um, well, so far all of the tweets have been me, but I don't think I'm that funny, so I would say it was Russell Brand.
4: You're right, it was Russell Brand. So let's just have a final look at the scoreboard. One, missed the two, cut three, editing. four, five, six and a half. That you, is
1: disappointing. Just on my own life but th- but I I'm, I'm delighted by the extent to which you have sat on twitter in order to research that so thank you Sati. that is that is a sort of a, a very surreal version of this is your life thank you uh, well, that's very
4: nice we've learned a lot about juliet lucy harris
1: <laughs> you've learned more than you really needed to know it mainly
4: to... that you've got a pretty poor mem-
1: memory <laughs> <laughs> Well, mainly but well, to be fair how am i meant to exp- how am i expected to remember my own tweets if there's been 99000 of them
4: indeed
1: Terrifying. say
4: that's probably enough for a couple of books if you'd have, if you'd have put that effort into,
1: into <laughs> writing <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks
1: for that, that makes me feel great cheers <laughs> coming next,
4: booze and drugs and rock and roll, uh, that's right after, Drake uh, uh, when did you get like this Least you could
2: have done is gonna get me I don't So I'll be right back. Some things look better inside of the you wish I had the courage to say everything I planned to my girlfriend my girlfriend call herself my girlfriend tell me that we supposed to be together till the world end but I don't really feel that I just really want to turn the wheels back yeah you always your sweaters and your heels back if it's you the time will heal that uh you look for reasons for us to argue I swear every time I call you just tell me how I don't call you why you do
1: Bit of a, a, a timely moment this week, I fondly remembered. Well, I fondly remembered "Young Folks" by Peter Bjorn and John, mm-hmm. which was the sort of whistling tune that um, haunted everyone's dreams for a number of years. I seem to remember it was everywhere constantly. Um, and then, as luck would have it, I found a CD on the floor the other day that had fallen off a shelf, and it was Peter Bjorn and John. Uh, so I very much enjoyed listening to that. Um, I then investigated them on the Twitters and on the uh, on on the older i iTunes app music thing and uh, and I, I wanted obviously with the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. had really exploded this week uh, over in the states, and obviously everyone around the world is, is a particularly sort of white people that, that think of themselves as being liberal we 're all kind of examining our own prejudices and examining our lack of knowledge about things. And so I did want to try and pick some artists of colour this week. I did not know until I researched this that Drake and Peter Bjorn and John had done a collaboration together and it was in fact very good. So I thought I'd pick it for the podcast. I enjoyed that.
4: I hadn't uh, heard that before, but came to know it very well today as I edited it to make it radio friendly.
1: Uh, of course, I didn't know how I never know how um, how sweary the rap things I pick are, oh, which is why I don't pick many of them. But I am. I I'm, I'm. You know. what can I say? Having just put me through the hell of not knowing my own life, <laughs> I feel that it is at least one all at this
4: point in time.
1: In, um, in real time,
4: back in the 60s, there was a the shift of opinion on the Beatles, n- not with young people, but with mm. aunts and uncles and the older generation. And it was all to do with drugs. Nobody knew they'd really taken stimulants to keep them going on their lengthy Mm. sets in Hamburg. And there was little, if any, coverage of the cannabis they started smoking, allegedly after being introduced to it by Bob Dylan. Although, in hindsight, from kind of help onwards, Mm. you can trace the move from lovable mop tops to more introspective and mellow songs, of course. What really saddened, annoyed and turned the oldsters away, at, at least for a time, Hmm. was the news that LSD was part of their lives. In June 1967, Paul gave a couple of interviews in which he said he'd taken LSD and everything changed. Obviously, there were pointers in Revolver and especially Sgt Pepper. But Absolutely. many of an older generation gave up on the Beatles almost overnight after those interviews. Hmm. It's hard to argue that drugs didn't play a very important part on the Beatles artistic endeavours from particularly 1965, 1966 onwards. Did it make them better or worse? I say it made them better, controversially. But Jules, some (laughs) some musicians argue that drugs and alcohol block their creativity.
1: Well it's interesting isn't it I'm um, I, uh, not a drug person I'm a, an occasional alcohol person I did get, not exactly get told off but I, it was pointed out to me by my Real Ale app Untapped, which fellow Real Ale nerds will enjoy I think can be familiar with you can record all the different types of beer you drink and uh, it, it tells you which country they come from and I find it a good way of as we learnt earlier on my memory is not always the best so I find it a good <laughs> way of reminding myself what it is I actually like so uh, so I, I, I'm quite a fan of that and it gently pointed out to me the other day that I had logged in seven days in a row to record a beer and that is not like me to, to drink beer every day so I gave myself a week off and uh, I'm drinking as we said the rather timely named pepper spray beer at the moment yes I ordered that ordered that some weeks ago yes can't quite believe that we ended up there but anyway the um the, 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 the picture on the front is someone's throat that is red by the way it is not you know someone being attacked but anyway um that might have been a bit dark even for edgy hipster brewers but still um so so I do have some experience with alcohol and some experience on alcohol's effects on other people, and I think, I think the the, the thing about alcohol and creativity is probably about the the thing about alcohol in anyone's life really, which is there are people that can seem to be able to deal with alcohol and drugs and seem to have a level of self-control about them and actually in order to be creative you have to have a level of self-control as well i think because people people think that you know the musician's life is just lying around occasionally writing a few songs and then having you know step two uh, question mark step three profit um it's not like that at all and actually as you alluded to earlier on the beatles got where they did by working incredibly hard in hamburg and indeed having to have stimulants in order to do so and and you have to put the hours in and sometimes there are some people who find that alcohol and drugs can energise them to do so. Weirdly, Damon Orban admitted a a while ago, I think, that he had, in fact, despite being associated with heroin by sort of uh, literally by association through Justin Frischmann, he then admitted that he did actually use heroin fairly regularly when he was recording for 13. And he said he would only take it at weekends. He would go to literally go to work, go to the studio and be very productive during the week and then be able to do that at weekends. Mm-hmm. he's very much the exception rather than the rule mm-hmm. i think and i think uh, i think that lots of musicians if you find it if you don't have that level of self control in in the way that you drink that lack of control over how you consume alcohol and drugs slowly but surely will become a lack of control in other areas of your life and so I can certainly understand and there are different personality types and I think that I've I, well I've read lots of things that suggest that some people have addictive personalities and some people don't and that is that is just some people can take things like heroin and cocaine and not get addicted and others do the minute that they that they, they so sort of you know they first ingest it so so I'm, I, I do find it interesting I think it is I think, like I say, I think it is a sort of a, a, a difference between a personality type and, and, and different people are creative in different ways and different people, you know, consume alcohol and drugs in different ways. I, I, there are some quite interesting quotes in this article from The Guardian. Uh, there was country music star Jason Isbell, who spent more than half a decade without drugs and, and alcohol. Um, he said, I wanted an excuse to disconnect. And once that excuse was gone, I had to start the process of figuring out why I needed to connect in the pro- in the first place when i got sober i was able to pay attention to the world more and awareness is the most important tool for any creative person when you're working so hard to numb your brain very often you throw the baby out with the bathwater. you miss things that you really needed when you sat down to write that song so it's uh, and he talks about how it's uh how it's easy to um, he was it, it's easy to um, to romanticize things, but he says it's just the addictive part of your brain, and that when he started writing a song after getting sober, he said he wasn't afraid, really afraid of losing his creativity. He just wanted to have another drink and was just trying to find an excuse to do so. So it's quite it's interesting Johnny Marr talking as well about how he stopped drinking in the mid twenty in the, in the mid two thousands rather, and he says that he. If you've got artistic tendencies, ideas and talent, eventually you get to the place with booze and drugs where you become the opposite. And he said he would he would before he quit drinking, he would often head to the pub or get stoned at home. And um, and he sort of said that he started writing a hell of a lot of songs for Modest Mouse when he stopped boozing because it meant that he had more time on his hands. Mm -hmm. And he actually thinks that... um, boredom is essential for good work he says boredom is the main wellspring of creativity if you obliterate that you're denying yourself a great opportunity so i think it's, it's very interesting that that it becomes the trackings of fame and it's a sort of the cautionary tale as old as time, isn't it really? How, how, you know, people become very focused, that cliche that you have your whole life to make your first album and then six months to make your second mm-hmm. and how people get, you know, people, uh, the, the combination I think of that pressure, that sudden pressure and insecurity that comes with that together with suddenly, if you become very successful, very quickly, having everything open to you and this, you know, terribly, Damaging and dated cliche of the uh, of you know of, of the sort of rock star lifestyle of excess and how actually when a lot of things cluster together in a sort of a storm how mo- more often than not you lose that kind of focus and drive and directed energy that you need in order to be creative. It it I, I remember Jarvis Cocker had had a lovely quote in the um in the Live Forever film where he said. Isn't it funny how you never hear people going, do you know what, since he's been on drugs, he's really blossomed and come out of himself. He's become such a nice person. No, people don't really tend to say that about people that take serious drugs regularly or or drink, drinking to a point where it becomes problematic. I think it is possible to be a problem drinker without necessarily being an addict although once you are a problem drinker it is quicker um, the 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 people i know have had issues it's it's quicker and easier to then become a full-blown addict you're nearer to that end of the spectrum than you are necessarily healthy drinking unless you know you clear up at that point I, I, there are lots of creative people Marion Keys has spoken very well I think about her alcoholism I know she's a writer rather than a musician mm-hmm. but she's a creative as well and she's sort of said that you know that 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 it got to the point where it was all that there was in her life and she describes alcoholics as an she says an alcoholic is an addict that wants to get help which I think is quite a good description really and I think that once once you become dependent on something everything else goes out the window i think and i think it is i think with with drugs and alcohol there are some people that are able to sort of you know use them to have fun and then carry on to sort of keep their lives together but of course if you are a touring musician you don't really have a normal life. You don't You don't necessarily, if you're on in a band on tour, which bands increasingly are, well, until the current situation, but, you know, in order to try and make some money, you know, you're not living a normal life where you have to go up and go to work. I mean, you have to play the show and do the sound check, but you don't have to get up and go to work on time. You know, you don't, you might not, if you are in a band, you know, you're not around at home to care for children, for example. You don't have to be certain places at certain times. You live a very irresponsible life and it's and it's very easy to get sucked into that and then of course once you try and then try to do something creative and productive it becomes increasingly harder if you're as i like johnny Mars thing of literally having to make time you know you you, mm-hmm. you know uh, to, to going out and drinking and partying takes up time and I and, and it's not just the the time I mean anybody that's ever drunk to excess and I include myself in this will tell you that you know it's not necessarily the three hour you know the four hours that you spend in the pub it's you know it's the disturbed night's sleep and then the several hours you spend hung over the next day that is the real kind of killer really so I yes it is possible you know to, to to I mean in the case of the Beatles they did open their minds and expand their minds particularly with LSD I think and they did later did achieve creative things i agree with you that perhaps they wouldn't have done had they had they gone in the other direction if you see what i mean but they were obviously able to cope with that oh
4: you you mentioned it dependency. And there's a strong argument that alcohol alcohol and or drugs can be literally deadly. And for musicians, it's proved so regularly through the years. Graham Parsons, Keith Moon, John Bonham, Phil Lineup, Michael Jackson, Amy Winehouse, Prince Tom Petty. It's a long, long list. But it's hard for me for me to say this um, without without sounding <laughs> pious. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was
1: going to say, uh, brother Terence comes. You know,
4: Indeed, it, it, it but whenever I've been involved with bands over a period mm-hmm. of time, I never saw any particular positives in their intake of <laughs> booze and especially drugs
1: That's and, interesting. i wondered if you'd have a perspective from a sort of a tour manager or on, exactly and- it was
4: particularly strange i think seeing so many of the punk musicians who began with the philosophy of doing away with the old ways yes. and swiftly being absorbed into the booze and drug culture nearly always in detriment to their music and in in, in many cases their lives mm. but on the other hand Without that LSD era of the late 60s, mm. we wouldn't have had all the sort of glory of the psychedelic period, all the great fashion, art, music that came from it. So as with so much in life, it's, uh, it's a question of,
1: balance and degrees I suppose yes I suppose so and and it's being said I suppose it's also the support systems that you have around you I guess and also there is maybe a sort of a class and and dimension to this in that it was easy for the Beatles to go there and come back because at the point of their careers at which they were really doing that they were incredibly rich and yes. they and they were incredibly well connected. They had strong enough support, and also fair play to Brian Epstein as well. They had strong enough support, and actually, once Brian Epstein, their manager, passed away, that was the point at which they really started to come apart. I think there was there was no real going back from that point. I don't think so. I think there's a lot to be said in all walks of life. You know, if you if you do start to have you know problems if you are using you know sort of drink or drugs are there people around you that sort of keep you moored and are there systems around you that keep you moored and of course it is easier to have those systems around you if you are rich than if you are poor
4: very very true coming up wrapping up uh, the last segment of the podcast with Christo. um
1: that's right we after this cultural just after after the my name tweet and <laughs> Drugs saga We've finally brought Some culture in it Not not a moment too soon I'm sure many people Would say
4: (laughs) That's right after uh, This lovely piece Of Pop Whimsy From Clifford T. Ward
1: Wish I had the wherewithal To attract your attention Wish I
2: had the wherewithal To attract your attention Attract your attention. Wish I had the wherewithal to attract your attention. If I hadn't inhibitions enough to cope with, now you come along beautiful and leave me hoping. If it wasn't complicated enough to start. in this feeling so hard to part
4: in the early 1970s, he was the epitome of uh, the English singer-songwriter, perhaps on just labelled as a bit eccentric because he was a teacher and he had this luscious, silky, long hair. He was um,
1: a very interesting character, wasn't it? And I love of pop whimsy. I, 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 I'm glad that you were able to bring some to the party after I stopped bringing my chintzy instrumentals because you and various, <laughs> others, various other listeners hated them.
4: Uh, you know, he produced some lovely songs, in particular on uh, the album this track comes from. Probably also a rarity in that I can't think of many songs with the word non-parai. Uh, in the lyrics um, from 1973 and the excellent album Home Thoughts, Clifford T. Ward and Wherewithal.
1: Yes, I enjoyed that very much. Thank Hmm. you, Terence of Dacham.
4: I remember going to the Tate Gallery in the mid 80s for a a breathtaking Mm -hmm. exhibition called 40 Years of Modern Art 1945 to 85. And I I was absolutely overwhelmed by it. There was hardly anyone there the day that we went and it was amazing to wander around Everything was there. Lichtenstein, Warhol, Rothko, Mm -hmm. the famous piles of bricks. And it was an introduction, I suppose, to me of environmental art, the impact of which has stayed with me very firmly since. There was a man called Richard uh, Richard Long, who produced amazing land art in both rural and urban settings. And all of this led me to the work of Christo, who sadly died this week. And his enormous projects all around the world, in particular, his wonderfully obsessive idea of wrapping huge structures in fabric. Now, I adore this sort of art. Others will see it as pretentious nonsense. Where do you stand, Jules?
1: Um, I I really like it as well, actually. And I I. I... I, you know, my first sort of question is: the older I get, the more like my parents I get. And I always think, you know, when people get so oh, 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 about these things, I always think, who is it harming? Mm. Is it causing a danger to anybody? No. Obviously, if you put stuff in the middle of the road, yes, that is dangerous. But if you're wrapping stuff, you know, if if, if you're doing things that are not causing an immediate obstruction who is it hurting? And I, I love the idea. Yes, there are parts of our natural landscape that are very, very beautiful. And, and you know, Lord knows we've done enough as a species to try and ruin the environment that we live in. But actually, I see I see this sort of thing. I see this playfulness and interaction of our environment around us. I, I, it makes us view it in a different way, because I really love the idea that, that art, you know, yes, there is a lot of modern art that is difficult to understand to describe it charitably but but when modern art gets it right it really can make us look at the world around us in a different way and there's nothing better to, to do that a better way of doing that than sort of large sculptures or, or or in the case of sort of wrapping things interaction with the world around us to sort of to, to to make a comment on it that then makes us look at it and view it differently I I very much enjoyed um I watched a documentary about Peggy Guggenheim the other day Mm-hmm. Who I wasn't, I, I knew of, but I wasn't hugely familiar. She was a lot of fun. It turned out um, she had quite a quite an out there life. When she was asked by her biographer how many husbands she'd had, she said she replied and said, "Do you mean mine or other people's?" I mean, <laughs> she was quite a she was quite a party person as well as being very introverted. But she, of course, did enormous amounts to back. Kind of modern artists early on, Jackson Pollock particularly, she was a huge supporter of. And I like the idea of people taking risks. And it's amazing how what is a risk one day is a multi-million-pound industry the next day, isn't it really? And 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 you know, it was the Christos of this world doing things that then meant that people like Anthony Gormley were commissioned by public authorities to to provide these amazing kind of sculptures, uh, sculptures around us that make us look at the look at the world in a different way. I, I love this kind of large scale art because I think it shows amazing ambition if done right, can be really playful and really funny, and just you know just just makes us look at the world in a different way and and I think recent events are showing us that that if we don't look at the world in a different way, eventually something will come come along that will force us to.
4: Well, about looking at the world another way, I think that's exactly it, because that exhibition at the Tate in the 80s, Richard Long, Christo, really did change the way I look at the world. When I go out for a walk now, I look at the countryside in particular in a completely different way and at the construction of flowers and trees and their relationships to each other and the environment and the world in which they exist. And so a kind of significant life changing event for me, really, but being able to look at things in in, in that particular perspective.
1: Absolutely. And I agree. When I I remember the first time I went to the Tate Modern and actually, like you, I saw an exhibition by Michael, uh, an exhibit by Michael Landy that was called Scrap Heap Services. And it made me think about things in a different way because it was a comment on basically Thatcher's Thatcher's Britain in the 80s and how so many jobs in heavy industries particularly were lost and how people were treated like like rubbish essentially that were just thrown away and it's and the exhibition is, the, the exhibit was lots of mannequins in kind of cleaning uniforms and it was uh, there were little figures like sort of stickman type figures that had been cut out of crisp packets and they were they were being tipped into what looked like a huge incinerator by the uh, by the dummies and they were all over the floor so you were literally treading on people as you walked in and we were all impressed by it because partly because it chimed with our political views but also because we just felt it was such a brilliant way of physically representing a point that the person was making that you know lots and lots of people You know, we might be entering another era that's very similar, you know, lost jobs, weren't given any help and were just sort of seen as being treated as being disposable. So so like you say, there are certain I think art does have the power, particularly sort of not just painting like large sort of, you know, other types of exhibit can can really that they in a way for me, sometimes things like that and sculpture are, are the best way of changing the way that we look at things and think about things because they're they're not just art on a wall are they they're around us and they're, they feel more like a part of our natural everyday life i suppose
4: we're still surfing on the ways of challenging times in many ways as we record this so we're ah. very grateful that you've joined us
1: yes absolutely thank you for uh breaking off from your zoom drinks to come and listen to us <laughs>
4: Thanks also to Rona and
1: Hilly for their help this week. That's um, Now, to reviews of Juliet's radio shows. Well, Here we go. This is going to be like my old tweets again, isn't it? There's been uh, too much me in this podcast. Guys, I'm sorry he does this sometimes. Offensive, outrageous,
4: <laughs> exploitative. <laughs> hey, no, I've, I'm i sorry, Joe. I've got confused again. I've got into a muddle there. They're actually reviews of Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, the American <laughs> reality TV show.
1: I've heard of this and just reading the synopsis made me not want to watch it.
4: Here's what people really said last week uh, about Juliet's show. Top show, cracking evening, Joy Overload. Where can we (laughs) overload with joy alongside you this weekend, Hey,
1: If you want some joy, I've got quite a lot of it to sling you away. You go to Mixler.com, which is M-I-X-L-R.com, and you search my name, which is Juliet Harris. That's where you find my page. I'll be broadcasting from five until seven on Saturday evening. Um, doing the Saturday Social, which is Northern Soul, Motown, Mod, etc. And on Sunday evening in the same place from 7 to 9 p.m., I'm doing Smooth Sailing, which is Yacht Rock, uh, M.O.R., Smooth, Easy Listening, Classic Pop, that sort of thing. Two very different shows, but as that American president once said, two halves of the same walnut.
4: To play us out, Jules' a single from 1968, with as much relevance today as it did 52 years ago.
1: Absolutely. If only it wasn't so relevant, but uh, mm-hmm. or, or rather, if only it wasn't so relevant in such a negative context. After the uh, the the terrible events in America this week, um, at the death of George Floyd, um, it was just a just a you know a, a a terrible terrible thing. And I wanted to pick a pick uh, artists of uh, artists of color this week, particularly. Um, as well as sort of challenging my own perceptions and of, of reading around things I was going to pick Bridge Over Troubled Water by Aretha mm-hmm. Franklin which I really love and then I thought why am I picking a, a black woman covering white men it didn't feel it felt like I was missing the point by doing that really and that is the level of thinking at which I think oh, we have to think now if you see what I mean um I could have put that more elegantly but still um so I thought I'd play this you know i find this incredibly inspiring and also actually i did think of you terence because i was going to pick some public enemy but i thought there was too much swearing in it so (laughs) i did try on some counts if not all but um i'm gonna pick this this is james brown and this is uh say it loud i'm black and i'm proud